so thank you very much, Lucy, for the introduction. Um, so I'm going to be talking about the carnivore diet today. And some of you may have heard of this, some of you may not have heard of this. Uh, I've been, been speaking to a few people who, uh, who do it already. Uh, so welcome to all fellow carnivores out there. Uh, so carnivore diet, is it miracle cure or is it just madness? Uh, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So declarations, I'm never quite sure what you're meant to declare with these kinds of things, but um, I'm carnivore. Uh, I go against kind of my college, which is the plant-based medicine. Um, I run a podcast and a YouTube channel. Uh, I have health courses available, uh, I suppose that's a conflict. Um, and I'm also a doctor and I like to make people better. Um, and so there's a conflict certainly with drug companies out there, because I like to de-prescribe. Um, so this is a little bit about me. I'm a GP and board certified lifestyle physician. Uh, born and raised in the UK, came to Australia about four or four and a half years ago now. And just like probably most people here, I've had my own health journey uh, over the years. Uh, impaired glucose tolerance, uh, definitely obesity, um, sugar addiction, that one is very, very real. And like everyone, sorry, like everyone, I've pretty much tried every diet in existence. And uh, just to show you proof of what, uh, a little bit about my health journey, this is what I used to look like on the left. and. Kind of now on the right, not the best picture, but fun um, <laughs> they out with the family. Uh, so, what is the carnivore diet? Uh, well, basically, it's a pretty simple diet. It's characterized, characterized by the consumption of animal products, uh, mainly meat, of course. And what we're doing is we're actually avoiding pretty much all plant-based foods. Uh, now, we'll come back. We'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, like any good diet though, and we've heard a lot of great speakers today, of course, talking about it, we're minimizing uh, or avoiding completely, if possible, processed foods, chemicals, and additives. Uh, now, the carnivore diet has actually been around for quite a long time, and it used to be referred to as a zero-carb diet, uh, which of course is a ketogenic diet. Um, it's been around for around about uh, seven years or so, known as the carnivore diet. Um, but it's been knocking around Facebook groups and things, you know, as a zero-carb diet for about 20 or 30 odd years now. Um, it's actually far older than that. It goes back hundreds of years, if not potentially thousands of years. Some of you may have heard of the Salisbury steak, uh, invented by Dr. James Salisbury. And he pretty much believed, this is about 150 years ago or so, he basically believed that plants were actually bad for us and were causing a lot of problems. And he was utilizing essentially a carnivore diet to cure conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, and so on, in these patients uh, that basically couldn't have surgery because there was no anesthetic and so on. So what are the potential benefits of the carnivore diet? Why would we do this potentially crazy diet that we just need to meet? Well, it's, it's an incredibly anti-inflammatory diet. Uh, in my opinion, one of the most anti-inflammatory diets out there. Um, I actually don't like the term diet. I prefer framework, because um, diet has a very negative connotation, as we know. Most people find vastly improved metabolic health and metabolic health markers like uh, high sensitivity CRP, homocysteine levels, monocyte counts, these kinds of things as well. Almost everybody reports incredible energy levels, uh, brain function, uh, very much like a keto diet, but even further. You know, if we talk about a low carb diet, a keto diet, carnivores kind of somewhere out here uh, for most people. Almost everybody reports improved libido, uh, and sexual health is a very important marker for our general health, uh, I believe. Almost complete resolution of almost all gut problems, uh, which for anyone out there that suffers with IBS, you know how, how 
uh, this can be. And almost every single patient I put onto the carnivore diet, that IBS just disappears within often weeks, if not days. And it seems to be excellent for people with autoimmune conditions. As I mentioned, uh, you know, Dr. Sol's been putting people on it hundreds of years ago. And in essence, it's a ketogenic diet. So it can do everything that a low carbohydrate diet can do, or a ketogenic diet can do, but potentially more as well. So I said I'd come back to plants. And what about plants? Why on earth are we taking out these amazing things that we should all be eating? Well, one of the main things here is plant toxins. And these are very real. Um, plants can be full of toxins, anti-nutrients. Uh, Peter mentioned briefly about lectins on one of his slides there in bread. Uh, these things are all very real and they can affect us to varying degrees, but some of them can be pretty toxic. Now we know that plants have toxins in. I'm assuming most of you by now know that you can't just go into the forest to eat random berries because you'll probably get sick. You can't just go home and eat your grass on your lawn because you'll probably get sick. But what is it about those that make us sick? Well, it's these kinds of plant toxins. And, uh, and these are very real and they can cause a lot of problems. And they're in a lot of foods that we actually just take for granted and we eat, you know, every day. So oxalates are particularly problematic, and I know I've been speaking to a lot of people about oxalates today. These are present in a lot of foods, a lot of foods that we are told to eat that are very good for us, and particularly those that we're told are very anti-inflammatory. But oxalates are actually very inflammatory, and of course Peter mentioning about inflammation earlier. And these are just some of the things that you've probably got lying around in your house that you might use a lot. And for example, turmeric, a lot of people use turmeric as an anti-inflammatory. But it's very high in these oxalates, and oxalates are very inflammatory. And they can cause the widespread inflammation, they can cause things like interstitial cystitis, uh, they can cause um, uh, gout, they can cause kidney stones, we know these things, potentially implicated in some conditions even like breast cancer, for example, though the research is sketchy on that one. Nightshades. People may have heard of nightshades. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that can't eat tomatoes because it gives them terrible heartburn. These are very high in nightshades. Uh, oxalates can also cause uh, heartburn as well. But nightshades are very high in uh, the pepper family, the capsicum family. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that can't tolerate spicy food, can't tolerate peppers or tomatoes, for example. These are, these are potential problems as well. Phytoestrogens. These are not real estrogens. To my knowledge, uh, there's very few to know plants in the world that actually use oestrogen inherently within them. So why do plants have oestrogen in them? Well, these are actually endocrine disruptors, they're hormone blockers. And why do plants have these toxins in if they're not, why do they have these hormone blockers if they're not using them? Well, it's to stop things eating them. And human beings are just kind of a bit too stupid to realize that maybe we shouldn't eat food that's, uh, that doesn't taste that great for us. Uh, phytoestrogens, some people do find benefit from them. I'm sure there's people out there uh, who may be postmenopausal women, for example, that do uh, eat soy products and it can help them, and it's because some do. But they also can be quite harmful and they can cause um, things like PCOS uh, and other metabolic disorders as well. And these are just some of the products that are pretty high in phytoestrogens. Again, things that we eat mostly every day. Lectins are a big problem, and as Peter mentioned those in his, in his lecture as well. And again, it's typically the things that we are told to eat. So beans, legumes, grains and wheat, 
nightshade vegetables, you know, like the tomatoes, the capsicums, you know, carrots, etc. Seeds and nuts, uh, as we mentioned again. Interestingly, uh, cow's milk products can be quite high in lectins as well. Um, so that is a downside potentially of the carnivore diet. And phytates, again, these are very inflammatory and potentially anti-nutrients as well. The term anti-nutrients refers to things that which are, which are basically blocking uh, the absorption of, of nutrients within the body. Again, things that we are typically told to eat actually can be very high in these phytates, which are potentially inflammatory to us as well. So what are some of the issues, potential issues around a carnivore diet? Well, I'm sure this is a question people are probably wondering about. What about fiber? Now, we're all meant to eat lots of fiber, aren't we? Well, I mean, it looks delicious, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't that just make you want to eat wheat bigs? Um, is fiber required for proper bowel function? Well, I haven't eaten any fiber in almost eight months. I can assure you I have opened my bowels a couple of times. Um, fiber isn't necessarily required for proper bowel function, as I just said. It can cause a lot of problems as well in people's diet. And I apologize, there's meant to be a reference there at the bottom. It hasn't really come out very well. Um, when you remove fiber, often people can improve with their GI symptoms quite significantly, actually. And in 2012, there was a study, uh, 63 patients, it wasn't a huge study to be fair, uh, with idiopathic constipation. And idiopathic means we don't really know what the cause is. And basically their findings showed very clearly that more fiber equals more constipation. It just made it worse. It didn't improve things at all. And actually the treatment was to stop the fiber completely. And that actually resolved the constipation. Now, if anyone wants to know the reference, I can, I can show them later. Uh, it just didn't come out, unfortunately. So these are some of the other issues around, potentially, around the carnivore diet that people would criticize. So a lack of fiber, we spoke about already. Uh, limited nutrition. Uh, and to be fair, yes, limited nutrition, that is a potential argument because berries, plants, etc., they have all these vitamins and minerals that we are supposed to need. But very interestingly, uh, if we take vitamin C, for example, you know, if you go onto Google and ask it, how much vitamin C does beef have, it'll tell you zero. If you actually go onto the USDA website, it'll tell you it has little, very, very little, um, 0 0.00015 milligrams per 100 grams or something along those lines. Interestingly, there's only ever been two documented cases, to my knowledge anyway, uh, of scurvy on the carnivore diet in the world. And this was actually the same patient twice. Um, <laughs> And uh, the, the details are very limited. And I think he was in South America. He was effectively some sort of hermit uh, living in a cave, eating God knows what. And when they asked him what he ate, he basically said meat. And that was the extent of his dietary kind of knowledge of what he actually ate. And for whatever reason, he got it twice. But that's pretty much the only documented case of scurvy uh, in, in the world. Um, other vitamin and mineral deficiencies, uh, again, theoretically, yes, they can happen. But very interestingly, whilst the science would say these can happen, the reality is they just don't seem to. So there's obviously just that little bit of a disconnect there. Red meat, again, red meat is potentially an issue, but we'll come back to that one. Processed meats, boredom, being restrictive diets, etc. We'll come back to these things. So limited nutrition. Now, please excuse my uh, YouTube thumbnails. Um, so basically, I did, a, I did a diet, I did an experiment. I just ate ribeye steak only for 30 days. I just wanted to see what would happen if I did it. A bit crazy, I know. But interestingly, my iron, my folate, 
and my zinc ore went up and I didn't get to go there. Uh, very interesting again with vitamin C. Once you take out the carbohydrates from the diet, your vitamin C requirement potentially goes down dramatically because it's no longer being uh, competed with the GLUT4 transporter for collagen production. Um, and again, to talk a little bit about fiber, I'm going to give an analogy here. Uh, wheat bix versus butter. And in this analogy, wheat bix is the fiber and butter is the fat in our diet. So when you eat, if you leave a bowl of you know, half-eaten wheat mix out on the counter, you know what happens to that bowl of wheat mix when you come back at the end of the day? It's gone rock hard because the air is simulating what the coal line is doing. The primary job of the coal line is to draw water out of the stool to reabsorb that water and it has a few other functions to be fair. So the air is simulating what the coal line is doing and the longer you leave that bowl of wheat mix, which is the fiber in this analogy, the harder it gets, to the point where you can't even scrape it off the bowl anymore, and you have to soak it for days to get it off. Now, if you just come home and you go, oh, this bowl of remix is real hot, I'm going to put more remix on top. What happens? Nothing. Nothing, Nothing happens. It's just now more remix on top of dry remix. Nothing happens. Now, if you eat enough remix before it gets hard, if you keep filling this bowl so it doesn't have a chance to actually get hard, it overflows outside. So with fiber, if you keep eating enough, eventually what will happen is it will kind of just push it through your bowel. And then it comes, well, by the time it's going to get hard, it's already out your bowel, it's gone. But then, you just, then you're just doing enormous poos all day. And you're doing them all day, every day. With fat, what happens if you leave a bowl of butter out on the work surface and come back at the end of the day? Still soft. What happens if you leave it for a day? Still soft. What happens if you leave it for a week? Still soft. You leave it for a month. Maybe it's got moldy by that point, but it's still soft. And that's what fat is doing in our guts, in our bowels. It's actually keeping the stools nice and soft. It doesn't matter how much water you draw off them, it's still going to stay soft. So, red meat. In 2015, this is from the World Health Organization, uh, after thoroughly reviewing the scientific literature, a working group of 22 experts, uh, from basically with the WHO, considered that the red meat was probably carcinogenic to humans. Group 2A evidence, they called it, based on, in their own words, limited evidence. Now, basically what that means is in their own criteria, probably sufficient means it didn't actually show any causation. They couldn't prove that it was causal. And this is a case almost of eminence versus evidence. This is a quote from me. And my wife said, what the hell are you quoting yourself? That's weird. Um, but this is about being restricted. A lot of people that say the carnivore diet is very restrictive. In my opinion, it's absolutely not. And I was speaking to people earlier who were saying the same. I don't think it's restrictive to eat food that you love, that is delicious, that is nutritious. And it really provides all the nutrition that we actually need for human life. I think by very different definition, you can't say that is restrictive. Now, yes, it might be restrictive to say that I can't eat ice cream but actually don't want to eat ice cream anymore. Um, which is very interesting. Dr. Lucy spoke, of course, about sugar addiction a little bit there. Now, I am a terrible, terrible sugar addict. And this has been the bane of my life, which is why I had all the problems I had. I could never manage low-carb and keto because I always struggled with that willpower. It was always a willpower. How much carbs can I eat? How much sugar can I eat? I was always the loophole guy. You know, it was, okay, well, keto, I can do 20 grams of carbs. 
or I don't need to be in ketosis all the time, do I? I can be in ketosis today, then not tomorrow, it's fine. And I can eat 55 grams today if I eat 45 grams tomorrow. I was always a lipid guy, I always struggled with that. With carnivore, there hasn't been a struggle at all. My sugar addiction is basically gone. It's very fascinating. A lot of people I was talking to earlier say exactly the same thing. It's just like a switch has flipped in my head. It's the kind of how much sugar. The addiction's still there. Like if I, someone gave me a Tim Tam, I like the whole box. But I just can now, I can walk past the Tim Tams and just not care, which is absolutely freeing. And I say, again, people said the same, food freedom, which is amazing. What about gout? Surely red meat causes gout, we all know this. Well, does it? What actually causes gout? Well, urate and oxalate. We mentioned those earlier. And what causes urate to go up? Purines and fructose. If I'm putting that correctly. We've had a lot about fructose today and its dangers, but how many of you knew that fructose could cause gout? Maybe not that many. A few people, a few hands going up. So I won't bore you with the details of the pathway, but essentially fructose can end up as uric acid, uh, which of course can trigger gout. And for any you know, healthcare professionals out there that have patients with gout that absolutely swear blindly, they don't eat red meat, they don't drink alcohol, they don't eat seafood, but they still get gout, ask them about their fruit consumption or table sugar, soda. These things can trigger gout. Let's talk a bit about purines as well, because of course everybody says that red meat will cause gout, but does it? So if we look at the purine level per 100 gram, beef is actually lower than chicken which is not red meat. Now, that is high, to be fair, yes, but beef is lower. But then look at lentils. Lentils are higher than beef. So they're more likely to cause gout than beef is, plus they're going to be chopped full of oxalates as well. So what are we actually eating on a carnivore diet? Now, this is where the definition can get a little bit loose. Um, the carnivore diet, the carnivore community can be a little bit um, militant sometimes, and, you know, some, like any, any kind of you know, diet kind of community, you have to do what they say or you're an outsider. But in my opinion, we're pretty much just eating, you know, meat, like whatever meat we want for the most part, whatever works for you. Some of the criticisms or questions I get is, you know, isn't it expensive to just eat meat? And we know, yes, the headline price of meat is quite expensive nowadays. But there's ways you can make it cheaper, you can buy things on special, uh, you can buy cheap cuts of meat like minced beef, minced beef because it's so versatile, um, chuck roast, uh, typically like $20 a kilo, maybe cheaper in the supermarket. I, I buy a lot of my meat from the supermarket. I was asked earlier, you know, where do I buy from? Do I go to specialty butchers and so on? No, I don't. I go to Costco and I go to Woolworths and I buy it on 10% off. Like, that's what I'm buying. I'm not buying raw spent everything organic, you know, raised by uh, unicorns and whatever. No, I'm not buying that kind of stuff. I'm just buying the same as everybody else. And it works perfectly fine. It really is, in essence, equally like, as long as it's animal-based. And in terms of kind of like fat, protein, etc., obviously we're pretty much going zero carb here, so we can kill that zero percent. But in terms of calories, I hate counting calories. I've done it all my life. It's absolutely horrible. I don't count calories anymore. Um, we're prioritizing fat, like any ketogenic diet. We're typically aiming for around maybe 70 to 80 percent of calories from fat. Uh, and that sounds like a lot. But to give you an idea, a ribeye steak or a chuck roast is about 75% of calories from fat just by itself. The overall thing here with a carnivore diet is eat to your taste and eat to your budget. 
you don't need to go crazy. As I said, buying grass baited the Wagyu steaks at $150 a kilo, no. You know, $10 a kilo mixed from the supermarket is perfectly fine. As a rough guide, I do give some of my patients a little bit of an outline. Please feel free to take photos as well, by the way. Um, and this is just, hopefully it looks all right on the screen. It's just a brief outline, the kind of thing that you might want to be eating on a carnivore diet. Um, obviously, you don't need to follow this. And I tell my patients, do you be intuitive? Eat when you're hungry, don't eat when you are not. And pretty much just eat, eat what you want as long as it's animal-based. Um, but this is just, you know, some, there's some variation. Typically, like bacon and eggs for breakfast, uh, maybe like just like a roast silver side or something, slice it up, take it into work for lunch. And then a steak or, you know, roast dinner, whatever, for, for dinner. Um, if anybody is interested, I do have a guide on starting a carnivore diet. Um, feel free to come and talk to me afterwards uh, in the break if you're interested in that. There is a discount code, uh, LCRS50, uh, if you want a 50% off until the end of May. So low carb roach 50, LCRS50. So how can you learn more about the carnivore diet if you are interested? Uh, well, sadly, there's no textbooks available. It's not something that we learn in medical school. Um, so it's about getting out there, actually doing your own research, listening to podcasts uh, like myself, the Meme podcast, there's other people out there. Get onto YouTube, you know, speak to carnivore doctors. Um, otherwise, you know, jump in and see the benefits. I've spoken to a number of people today that have uh, said, you know, they, they, just, they just jumped into it because for whatever health reason or they were going for a colonoscopy, whatever, they needed a low residue diet. They just decided to go carnivore for a week, felt amazing, and so they just carried it on. If it doesn't work for you, then that's fine. You just stop doing it. Um, and hopefully we've got time. I'm not sure how I'm doing the time. But uh, I wanted to just present a really quick case study as well, actually. Now, this, unfortunately, is not a carnivore case study, but it's a low-carb uh, case study. Uh, and just for anyone who is uh, maybe thinking about going low-carb and is maybe on the fence a little bit, um, so this was uh, Mr. Mr. David, a uh, 50-year-old gentleman, and uh, he saw me, uh, he'd known to me previously, but he saw me back in September last year with an HbA1c of type 7 so a new diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Fasting glucose was 18.1. Uh, by the 5th of December the same year, that's not a typo, um, his HbA1c was 5.6 and it's fasting glucose down to 5.3. And the only thing that I did was give him a little bit of education, steer him in the right direction. Uh, he did all the work himself, and I put him on metformin. And he actually never came back um, to increase the dose. Uh, and I contacted him, actually, and I said, you know, why, why you can make that? He said, because I'm just doing it, and I don't need to increase the dose. I'll see you in three months. And, uh, and so he's actually considering a carnivore diet now. We're speaking to him today, and he's pretty much almost there, actually. And his starting weight was 148 kilograms, and he's now under 100 kilograms. And uh, this is what he used to look like and what he looks like now. Uh, and David is actually here today in the audience. David, do you want to stand up and give a wave? And uh, if anyone is interested in talking to David, he's told me that he's very happy to talk to people about his journey. Um, and it's now down 55 kilograms. 55 kilograms. And David really just did a combination of keto diet and intermittent fasting with a little bit of exercise as well. Um, thank you all for listening. Um,
Are there any questions? <laughs>